This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 40 of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented folks in and around the hospitality industry from Orange County, the rest of Southern California, and beyond each and every episode. I am your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder of the Best Seats. As always, Thank you so much to my friend Allie Coyle for providing the music for the show. You can find her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. And as a reminder, if you like it wherever you're listening to it, please leave a rating or review for the show because it helps other folks find it and lets me know if I'm doing everything right or everything wrong. But enough of that. Let's chat about my guest. Episode 40. Holy cow, this is going quick. Josh Copel is my guest for this episode. He is a Michelin-rated restaurateur out of Los Angeles and a tech pioneer in the hospitality industry. He runs his own podcast, uh, Full Comp. He is a great guy based out. He is originally from New Orleans, up in Los Angeles now, uh, a veteran of the industry and a really, really, really great mind pushing the technological kind of aspect of what restaurateurs can do, how they can raise their own game, increase profits, things like that. Basically building dynamic business plans to make sure that your restaurant is successful, different leadership personalities, leadership versus management tactics. Um, and this is just a really awesome episode. This is a rapid fire one. We did record this one socially distant. Josh is up in Los Angeles. I am obviously down here in Orange County. Um, he requested to do it long distance due to obviously COVID guidelines. So this isn't over the phone one. So if there are any audio bumps or anything like that, I apologize in advance, but I wanted to get this one on the books. He's a great guy. I've been a fan of his for a while. I was so humbled when he reached out and said he wanted to come on the show. I immediately booked him up. Um, and got him recording. And this is a killer, killer, killer episode. If I know there's a lot of different people from different backgrounds that listen to this show. If you are hospitality, especially if you're in a management position or ownership position, please listen to this one and take some notes. He drops a ton of great free knowledge right on your doorstep. And I know that we are still dealing with COVID-19 global pandemic. And there's a lot of great info in here about how you can continue to tackle it from a business standpoint build your business ready for the future so you are good to go and make as much money as you can to take care of people. We talk about a bunch of other topics too, such as cloud kitchens, kind of that ghost kitchen mentality going on with third-party apps, third-party delivery apps in general, and a bunch of other stuff. But enough of that. That's enough of me talking. Let's jump right into episode 40 of the Best Seats Podcast with my guest, Josh Kopel. I appreciate you taking the time, man. I was excited to talk to you. No, I'm uh, I'm I'm thrilled and humbled that you reached out and, and wanted to connect. I've, uh, I've been a huge fan of your restaurant, kind of following it and, and followed some of the staff that you've had on, listening to their stories on other podcasts throughout this whole kind of past year. So I was uh, really, really happy when this whole thing came together. Thank you for taking the time. No worries, man. It's my pleasure. I, I just, you know, I, I've got 
I've got a pretty simple message and I'm just trying to get it out there to as many people as possible, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I just think there's a better way to do business. And, you know, I ate shit over the last year, just like everybody else. Um, but we don't have to like the taste and it doesn't have to be this way forever. Well, God willing, it won't be. It seems like we're kind of on the tail end, fingers crossed. So hopefully that message rings true. Uh, Josh, for people who are going to be listening to the podcast who may not be familiar with you or your background, would you mind giving a little bit of kind of your personal history and kind of what brought you to where you are now? Absolutely. I, I'm a Michelin-rated restaurateur. I, I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I grew up in the service industry. I spent the last 20 years in it. And for me, uh, it was always about the people, not really about the food or the beverage, which led me to getting into all three tiers of dining. I, I opened, used to run nightclubs in Hollywood in the early 2000s, opened my own bar in Hollywood in 2010, opened a fine dining restaurant in 2014, then opened a fast casual concept a couple of years later. What have you been doing? I mean, the obvious question that we got to get out of the way first is obviously like everybody, you've been kind of getting your ass kicked for the past year. Where do things kind of stand with you and, and your business now? So I had sold the fast casual concept and the bar fourth quarter of 2019, which was serendipitous timing. Yeah, seriously. Uh, 2020, I, yeah, for sure, right? Uh, 2020, I, I still own the, uh, the the fine dining restaurant, and we could kind of see, and they've they've actually had uh, a bunch of a bunch of case studies come out about it. I had noticed a slump in sales in the first quarter of the year before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought it was a little hinky because we, we had been on like, like a stellar trajectory prior to that. Um, and so I, you know, what I thought to myself was, I thought, you know, if, if things continue this way, we're going to need to reevaluate, potentially pivot and the pandemic hit and we shut down. And after months of soul searching, I, I just didn't feel comfortable opening the restaurant because I didn't feel like I had like, like a formula a repeatable formula for success that I was guaranteed to open and I was guaranteed to make money. And I know that that seems crazy or selfish or naive, but I, I didn't want to reopen unless I was positive that, uh, that, that we would kick ass. And so uh, I, I paused operations and eventually ended up selling that lease. You did something kind of it almost like I did, although your reputation obviously kind of puts you f- much more and well-deservedly so ahead of the pack. Um, I want to talk about your podcast real quick and what you've been doing to additionally kind of give voices. Obviously, you know, the word of 2020, as you already said, it was pivot. Everybody's kind of having to do it. When you started to move into kind of the more digital realms and uh, digital marketing and things like that to kind of expand your expertise, talk to me about your podcast and what that's been like from your end. So the podcast full comp was, was an experiment in a selfish endeavor. It, it was an excuse for me to reach out to people I, I had looked up to my entire career and, and ask them the questions that I had always wanted to ask them. And then I decided to put those conversations in a public forum. Uh, so I, I reached out. I found that early on in my career that mentorship was invaluable and that the people that I, that I idolized were typically, within reason, more than willing to share what they knew. If you could approach them in the right way and you could offer value to them as well. So, so I, I use the platform to learn. Again, trying to answer this one question. It's success and hospitality formulaic. You see people up in one restaurant 
and close it four months later, never to reopen again. Mm-hmm. And then you see people open one and then two and then 10 and then 20. And they, they're just, there have, there have to be consistent similarities between those that succeed and those that fail on a national level. And so, you know, all of the questions that I've asked to all of the people that I had on the show revolved around that, really trying to distill out and download what, you know, what makes them brilliant. That grew and it became less about finding hospitality professionals that had done well, more about finding business people yeah. that, that were brilliant in their own right. And, you know, what, what knowledge, what wisdom do they have that we could then turn around and bring into the hospitality industry? And people knew that our industry was suffering, so they were happy to help. Guys like Seth Godin and Derek Sivert were happy to jump on the show and talk about their experience and what we could glean from their marketing efforts and their business expertise. I think during this entire thing, one of the biggest chinks in the armor of hospitality, because like you said, someone can open a restaurant for months later, it's closed and people just kind of chalk it up. Oh, you know, that's the industry places closed and they open. I do think there's a more systematic undercurrent going on with it. Speaking to that point, you've been very, very involved in pushing into digital marketing trends. And like I said, I think that's one of the things that was really exposed during this entire thing. You had restaurants I could afford PR, you had restaurants I could afford social media, but really there are practices that everybody could start to adapt from a technological standpoint to really push this. I know people like Richard Blaze have been busy on this, kind of implementing different technologies in their restaurants to kind of measure efficiency and kind of increase profits where they can. What are some of the things that you're doing or working with other restaurateurs nowadays with regards to digital marketing and those measures? Well, I mean, to, to answer your question, I'd like to start high level, which is there, there is a, a big lie that has been passed along generation by generation through the industry, which is that the restaurant industry is different from all other industries. And we operate by different rules and we have different business structures. And they don't, they won't operate. They will not succeed unless we abide by this different set of rules. What I have found is that is not true. So as as business owners and restaurateurs, we have to be marketers and innovators and savvy when it comes to, to tech and ways to leverage that tech to increase the level of hospitality within our restaurants. And from a marketing perspective, uh, the, the biggest trend that I've seen is that people are pulling away from uh, marketplaces and trying to own their own customers, own their own data, own that experience. What we've seen through the, the prevalence of third-party delivery is that you know it, it, it masquerades as a infrastructural solution, but it's not. It, it's a marketplace that's charging you a premium for access to your own customers. Mm-hmm. People are getting tired of that. So instead of investing money in specials and deals on Uber Eats, they're turning around and charging a premium rate on Uber Eats and rolling that money into Facebook ads so that they can collect their customers' information and then market directly to them. They're taking delivery in-house using uh, all of these infrastructural tools. A great example is inhousedelivery.com. People are using all of the available resources to, to effectively uh, garner new customers and then communicate with frequency with those customers. There's also a huge trend in, uh, in, in content marketing, in value marketing. You're seeing uh, at no cost to customers 
free recipes being given out online and through newsletters. You're seeing online cooking classes and uh, these virtual experiences to add value and build connection between the restaurateur, chef, and, and their patrons. Yeah, I've done a couple of episodes with um, different chefs. I know Rachel Hagstrom from Justin Winery was talking about her experience with online cooking classes, and a couple of liquor brand reps are saying the same thing from the alcohol sales side point of doing Zoom cocktail classes and things like that. Yep. Where do you see, especially now that the the conversation is becoming, and I think, in my opinion, rightfully so, laser focused on those third party delivery apps, especially. Um, you know, I watch Twitter pretty much, or food Twitter pretty much, have a meltdown when DoorDash's um, was it their Super Bowl piece went live. Yeah. What, what do you see some of the trends evolving from that digital marketplace? It's, it's a great question. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And I'm going to say that, like, I read the DoorDash S1 and they don't make any money. They don't mm. even know how they're going to make money. When, when, when you look at the, the financial filings of Uber and Postmates, now they're one company and Grubhub, none of these companies are financially solvent. And, it, and it's because foundationally it's a broken system. They spend a fortune to acquire restaurant partners, to acquire drivers, and to acquire customers. So there's no way a restaurateur is going to influence or fix that system because on a foundational level, it's broken. What you can do is use them for what they're good for. If I charge you in any other industry, if I charge you a one-time 30% commission on the first sale to get a new customer, you would say that's a great deal. And that is a great deal. The question is, how do you own that relationship after that first sale? And I think that's the conversation to have. I think everybody should be on every third-party delivery platform there is. But I think that they have to own the relationship after that first transaction. And the bigger conversation to have there is about conversion. How do you convert these people to ordering through your website? And I think it comes down to storytelling. I think it comes down to dropping a flyer in the bag that says, hey, if you order through our website, you'll get your food cheaper and faster, which is true. Mm -hmm. um, and, and simple things like that give you the opportunity to talk to these people and talk to them with frequency. Before we jump to a couple other topics that I'd written down, I wanted to get your opinion about something related to the third-party apps that is just really kind of starting to gain traction in the conversation of kind of these third-party services and things like that. And it's the concept of ghost kitchens. You're somebody that's run a multitude of different restaurants pretty much across every gamut. Ghost kitchens, I know, are a big fear kind of on that large end. You know, there's the kind of conspiracy talks of people like Uber buying up basically warehouses and putting a bunch of kitchens in them and essentially cutting out that middleman of the restaurant itself and just going straight to varied food delivery themselves. I know other restaurateurs that their restaurants are currently closed, but they're still trying to deliver food to their guests. So they're doing ghost kitchens. And in that aspect, I feel it lands in kind of a positive note. What are your thoughts on the concept of a ghost kitchen? I think it really depends on the operator. Truly. I, I think that it's going to come down to the fundamentals uh, of the, the financial structure of that thing. What does your overhead look like relative to your pricing, relative to demand? The great thing about a cloud kitchen is that it's not a passion project, yeah. right? Or at least it shouldn't be. That it's a data-driven decision. There's a hole in the market in this delivery radius, and I'm going to fill it. Um, what, what I think everyone considering a cloud kitchen needs to keep in mind, and this, is, this has been a huge transition in, in the thought process of marketers in the restaurant space, is that 
You cannot use marketing and advertising to create demand. You can't do anything to create demand. Either there is demand or there isn't. Marketing and advertising exist to make people aware of the fact that you are supplying something that they are demanding. So if you come up with an entirely new concept that no one's ever thought of and no one's particularly interested in, or you've decided to open a mediocre burger chain, it's really hard to differentiate from all of the other burger chains that are out there. It's not going to do particularly well. I, I think that whether we're talking about a cloud kitchen or, or a classic brick and mortar restaurant, more thought needs to go into product market fit. For, for so many restaurateurs, myself included, what we open is a reflection of self, which is a beautiful thing to think about in the abstract. But restaurants need to be a reflection of the communities that they service. Mm-hmm. And so rather than saying my dream was always to open an Italian restaurant, and if that's the case, you need to go find the right community for it. But the wiser decision is to say, I live in Los Angeles County. I want to work in Los Angeles County. What does Los Angeles County need that I can supply them with? Yeah, That is the recipe for success when it comes to Cloud Kitchen. I want to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit with regards to the digital marketing. Um, in the aspect of, let me find kind of the right way to ask it. You're, you're someone who's from New Orleans. I am a firm believer that people can say that New York is the greatest eating city in America. Los Angeles is. Chicago is always kind of a, a top podium finish. I would argue that the history of culinary in this country, cocktail culture, things like that originated in NOLA. Um, me too, me too. <laughs> I, I figured that would be your response. You're like, no, absolutely. You could have been from Bismarck and you've been like, no, no, it, everything started in Bismarck. Um, <laughs> right. Do you worry with some of the push into hospitality, embracing some of these more technological features that some of that romance of what we all kind of imagine restaurant and kind of bar life is, is going to be lost in the process? I think it depends on the operator. I know I'm not giving you straight answers, but I think every everyone's going to do it differently. I'll give you a great example. Do I think that it's incredibly important? I, you know, again, I had a Michelin rated fine dining restaurant. Mm-hmm. Do I think it's incredibly important that somebody gets to order with a waiter? No, I don't. I think that if they can order their food faster through a tablet that, that is elegantly placed on the table or dressed in the right way, and for the section they're sitting in, mm-hmm. there's a captain whose only job is to field questions, check in on them, make sure that everybody's comfortable. Do I think that that achieves a higher level of hospitality than having a waiter running around like a chicken with their head cut off, trying to service too many people at once? Mm-hmm. I, I think that there are two conversations to have there. One is what is sustainable and two, what is the most sustainable, hospitable model? And, and I think that if, if we look at many of the technological innovations out there, they go a long way to creating a more hospitable environment that is, that is friction-free or at the very least, less. there's less friction involved yeah. um, than in the traditional model. I, I mean, like just, just to, for my turn to play devil's advocate, I would argue that there have been no substantial innovations in the hospitality industry since the last time Jesus ate at a restaurant. <laughs> I would argue that the biggest innovation we have seen is, is, is the advent of the online reservation book. 
yeah. which is really just digitizing a piece of paper. Yeah. So it, it's time. It, it's time for us to evolve. And now is a magical time to evolve. One, restaurateurs have never been more open-minded when it comes to new ways of doing business, new technologies that are out there, and they're willing to actually try new things. Two, our patrons have never been pliable, and in this moment, they have never been more pliable. Yeah, They're willing to invest. Absolutely. You tell them how you want them to order, and they'll do it. Yep. They, they, they are invested in a world full of independent restaurants. You don't hear anyone on social saying, man, I can't wait till my local Applebee's open. I'm <laughs> biting my tongue, you know? Team Chili's for life. I know. I, I, I got you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some of those things. So as somebody who's been on the front lines of watching a lot of this and as somebody who is ex- extremely well-versed in this, let's talk about some of the, the, again, I hate the word, but it's the only word that fits, some of the pivots. What are some of the things from your viewpoint that you've seen that have worked and what are some of the things that people tried that haven't? That's a great question. Um, so I, the things that have not worked are the half part of the attempt. What you have seen are, are, are the companies, and you've seen fine dining to fast casual to fast food, pivot towards takeout and delivery. And the people that have done it sincerely with authenticity, that are trying to do it as well as they did dine-in service. So the people that dug their heels in and said, I still want to serve my community. So I'm going to create hard-cooked offerings and and large format do-it-at-home and these takeout boxes and these family packs. They've done, they've done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the people that have figured out pricing relative to third-party delivery. I mean, what I have seen work is, and, you know, hindsight being 2020, I wish I had done more of this myself, that the restaurants that had worked to build an audience, that they had direct contact with their audience, right? They had phone numbers and email addresses. The ones that were able to turn to a mailing list of a thousand and say, we love you and we know you love us too. If you want us to stay in business, we need you to buy a $50 gift card. Yeah, Those people have been able to thrive through the pandemic because that communication has been vital. And so I, I think that that's a huge lesson for all of us, that you can't let the open tables and the grub hubs of the world own your customer data. You own your customer. And just like you see indie rock bands and these like nasty bars around the country running around with a, with a pen and a piece of paper saying, hey, can I get your email address? Hey, can I get your email address? So that they can build their base. We need to do the same thing in our restaurant. And when we reach out to them, it needs to be all about value. Hey, I'm so glad you came in. I know you liked this dessert. I wanted to give you the recipe. They're not going to start their own restaurant based off your apple pie, I assure you. Yeah. What it's going to do is show goodwill. Well, and again, as speaking as someone who does cooking at home but looks at baking, like I would be starting my own episode of Breaking Bad. Yeah, that would be a good thing to do. You give me an apple pie recipe, I'm going to look at that thing and I'm going to be terrified of it. But I agree, those genuine kind of feel-good moments of giving back to the community that's giving you their time and money, I think are absolutely paramount. Let's talk about it from the we financials. Live in a, we live in a value economy. Absolutely. So, and that's what the next thing I want to ask is speaking about value, obviously, even before this, you know, better than most margins are incredibly tight at restaurants. A lot of smaller ones did not have budgets for public relations person for social media content manager. 
you know, I know a lot of like local places that that, you know, responsibility fell on the hostess or something like that. What are some things that restaurants with zero budget can be doing right now? What are things that you would recommend that people do digitally now that are basically, again, nothing is free. Everyone likes to think it is. It's not. But what are some hacks that people could kind of go through to better themselves, even as we kind of feel like we're on the tail end of this thing? Great question. I, I think that, that to start, I think you need to see how much customer data you actually have. So if you're a fine dining restaurant or you take reservations, I would go pool all of that data to see how many email addresses I can cobble. Uh, if you have notes or phone numbers or this or that, I would try and start text campaigns and newsletter campaigns. I would get on social media and I would be on social media constantly documenting. That's it. If you never have to wonder what to say. Just tell people what you're doing. Yeah. Hi, my name's Josh. I own Crew and Proper in downtown LA. Um, today, I'm going to walk you through the chef as he preps his gumbo. Mm -hmm. and, and just show people what you're doing in real time. The purpose of social media is either to stump, which I don't recommend, or, or, or to share, to document your life. The people that are interested in your restaurant are as interested in the how as they are in the what. Yeah. And now is the time for us collectively as an industry to pull back the veil and show people the effort that goes into what appears to be an effortless experience. It'll build value for your brand and it builds value for the industry. I want to pick your brain on an aspect of social media marketing. Um, you know, my position kind of as somebody who was, you know, I like to say I'm industry adjacent um, because kind of working in the media side of things, obviously long story short, when this entire pandemic broke out, that dried up, you know, hence this podcast started and everything that I've been doing since. Oftentimes when I tell people what I do, the response I get is, oh, you're an influencer. Influencers, you know, whether we can agree or disagree on them, do have a place in things. But I think that there's been a really, really strong reckoning and a rightfully deserved one so about pushing back on them. Now, LA is kind of the epicenter of the influencer pandemic. Um, what do you see as the future of influencers and their role, if they even still have one moving forward? I don't think it changes much. I, I, I think, again, kind of like third party delivery. I, I think that it's, it's the conversation and the terms of the agreement mm -hmm. that change, not necessarily what anybody does for a living. I think the future of restaurants is that they're still going to make food and sell it to people. They'll sell it to people in different ways than they did before, or at least in more ways than they did before. And influencers will still be influencing people. I think that they'll just do it in a different way, hopefully a more authentic way. I, I think that a restaurant is going to be able to, I think broadly, the restaurateurs are savvier than they have ever been ever through necessity. Over the course of the last 10 months, all of the things that we were totally unconcerned with, like social media influencers, we know everything there is to know about everything at this point. Yep. And so when that influencer calls and goes, hey, I've got a huge following, I'm going to be in town, I'd love to eat at your restaurant, that restaurateur is going to say, absolutely, I would love to have you. Your meal is going to be capped at this price or I have an influencer pre-female that I'm willing to offer you. And in exchange, I want four posts over seven days. This is what I want them to look like. This is how I want the content structured. And I want you to tag these people in it. That's an A, that way, a plus the restaurateur yeah. is in control of the relationship as the payer as opposed to the influencer controlling the relationship as the payee. 
I love that. And, and yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Everything is going to come down to individual operators. Let's talk about the individual operators, though. One of the conversations, and I've had this conversation almost with every guest that I've had on the podcast. Um, there were conversations going on before the pandemic, obviously, about balancing work-life balance, mental health in the industry, eliminating some of those kind of previous restraints and structural systems that were really kind of leading to you know, long-term harm, whether it was mentally and things like that. I know, I, I can't remember, the name of the college is escaping me, but I know a college just came out with basically that one of the deadliest roles a person can have in the past 10 months is a line cook. And that's both shocking and yet unsurprising. What sort of things can people be doing to better achieve that kind of work-life balance in an industry where it's always been notoriously difficult? That's a great question. I, you know, to, to distill it down to, I think the two most important elements, I think that we need to charge more and we need to work less. And mm -hmm. I'll explain how. One, I think that we should all be offering subsidized healthcare, retirement plans, and we should all set margins that are wide enough that we can actually make a healthy living, pay ourselves and put money away in the bank. So you set your pricing at that level. If you can stay in business, great. And if you can't, what, what was the point anyway? You know, the, the yeah. point shouldn't be to survive unconditionally. The point should be to thrive conditionally. I will dedicate my life to this project and I will do it as long as I get this in return. Businesses are not passion projects. They, they, at the very least, they shouldn't be. And I, and I think the perception of that is one of the things that led to the ruination of this industry over the course of the last 10 months. I think if we, if we look at it from a data-driven perspective, like I just explained, and we set our pricing, people will pay it or they want. And ultimately, price is a story anyway. You can make those numbers work. Two. Work less. I think that we've been asking the wrong question, myself included. We ask ourselves, how do I get busier on a Monday? And we invest a ton of time and money into it. Instead of saying, should I be open on a Monday? Yeah. Does the market want me to be open on a Monday? I would never open another seven-day-a-week seven operating restaurant again. I have no interest in it. I want a restaurant that runs five days a week, makes a ton of money, and that's it. And so what that requires is that requires me to spend less time working and more time thinking because I've got to mastermind that strategy. What can I create that can serve my audience, that they are willing to pay the price I need them to pay for it, and that they'll come during these particular days of the week? It's, okay. it's so much more than thought, right? No, absolutely. But like to run a five-day-a-week operation means you're guaranteed two days off and guaranteed two days off in a row which, I mean, was the brass ring of this industry for the last at least two decades that I've been in it. I'm, a, uh, I'm an ardent believer that menu prices should increase and that people should be charging more and providing all the things that you said. I know it's kind of a difficult thing for a lot of people to talk about. I mean, just recently somebody, you know, the conversation about the minimum raise or minimum wage was uh, being raised and people just started to go up in arms about it. Well, that'll raise all these other things. From the standpoint of accepting that price increase. What kind of things can the general public try to, um, I should say, what sort of things can the restaurateurs who raise those prices, and let's hope one day everybody does, communicate to not just the general public, but food media and third-party media in general about why? Aside from just saying, well, because it's just necessary, because there's going to have to be a conversation there about acceptance, because I think for far too long, people have accepted 
that you know a, do- a taco should be a dollar barbecue should be cheap all these other kind of assumptions about food that stereotype it how does that conversation go from restaurateur to general public and media that's a great question as well you've got a ton of good ones man um here's what i think i think that we stop talking about the industry i think we stop talking about our businesses and we start talking about ourselves i I truly believe that the reason the full comp podcast has resonated with people was because initially i was like the industry's broken and nobody wanted to talk about it. And then I said, your restaurant is messed up and here's why. And nobody was interested. But as soon as I said, my life is a disaster. My business was perfection on the outside and a mess on the inside. My life is terrible and I desperately want it to be so much better. Everybody perked up. Everybody listened. I, I don't think we in this moment have the luxury of being able to speak about other people or speaking in generality. I think that the restaurateur that owns that restaurant needs to own up to the reality of the situation and say, I am a business owner. I believe that I should be able to make decent money doing what I do for a living. I believe that I should be able to pay my team a living wage, give them a retirement program, subsidize their health care. And this is the cost of that. And if that doesn't resonate with you, then this is probably the wrong restaurant for you to patronize. But you have to dig your feet in the sand. Do you see gas station owners outside apologizing to to drivers every day? Like, hey, man, I'm really sorry I had to raise the prices on you today. I know that they were cheaper yesterday, but, you know, we're going through some things. Mm -hmm. In industries where there are variable costs, there need to be variable pricing. And you see it in every industry but ours. And it's because we are motivated by fear. We're afraid we're going to close. When what we need to be afraid of is that we will not thrive and that we will spend our lives struggling needlessly. Do you think that those efforts are going to lead to an increase in interest to get into the industry? For example, I was speaking with um, recent guests of the show and they were talking about having to staff up a new restaurant and how that's hard right now even with restaurants being closed staffing is tight there's not a lot of cooks there's not a lot of experienced beverage directors there's not a lot of experienced sous chefs etc etc do you think that making those changes ultimately will just i mean it's kind of a high tide raises all ship scenario do you think that's going to lead to kind of a resurgence of people wanting to get on the line wanting to get behind the bar even more than there kind of was a push for absolutely i i think that, that we should we should independently one by one stand together and turn this into an industry that is the envy of all other industries. You make more money working in hospitality than you do anywhere else. You have better benefits in hospitality than you do anywhere else. We have achieved a better work-life balance. We have a better sense of community. Um, You don't see the competition in hospitality that you see in other industries. That could be the reality of our situation. And when I bring these things up, everybody always says the same thing. They say, well, what about my neighbor? He's going to undercut my pricing. And I would argue that all we're in control of is our individual location. So we have to buy into the dream and we have to do it for ourselves. And if enough of us do it, then the industry as a whole is better off. Do you think that moving forward, again, everybody's question right now, the the conversation, right? The, the sentence you always hear is everybody can't wait get, to get back to normal. 
I don't know what things are going to look like on the other side of this thing, but I can't imagine that any place that's going to be long-term successful is going to go exactly back to the way things were before. What are some changes that have, or not changes, but I guess instances of the quote unquote pivot to stay on brand for that, that have happened over the past 10 months that you think are going to be new standards going forward? I, so I think that to start, I, I think that we all had the wrong business plan. You know, everyone talks about like the one page business plan. I think for so many of us, myself included, like I had like a one sentence business plan. I was going to make food. People were going to come need it and they were going to leave. And hopefully they were going to tell their <laughs> friends and maybe they'll come back. It's all encompassing. And that was it. Like, that's, that's it. Like, that's all, that's all there was to it. What kind of food are you going to serve? The kind of food I want to serve. You know, <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't think anyone else, you know, this is my dream. This is my vision. And, you know, we were fortunate in the way that time and time again, we, we, we lucked into product market fit, but it wasn't a strategy that should have been. The biggest change that I think you're going to see is going to be that there, there's, a more intentional way to operate a restaurant. I think you're going to see data-driven, culture-first restaurants. Mm -hmm. I think that that is that is a the people are going to align around the values, and and they're going to live those values on a day-to-day -day basis, not broadly, but narrowly, because you can manage through those values. That's a lesson that we can take from other industries, and I think that it'll be data-driven. And I think that for the best restaurant tours out there. You see them open a restaurant and close it six months later. Hey, this isn't going to work. I was wrong. Yeah. I hope you see a lot more of that in this industry than seeing people struggle year after year after year trying to train a dog that just won't hunt. Yeah. Um, the, the other big change that I think you're going to see is multiple revenue streams. I think that takeout and delivery is here to stay. I think farmers market boxes are here to stay. I think you're going to see a multitude of retail elements. Uh, I, I think that you are going to see all of these revenue streams continue to innovate and improve over the next 12 to 24 months. And I strongly recommend that everyone buy in heavy to all of them on any scale that you can. Because what it does is it makes you recession-proof. If you have a strong online presence and, and, and a strong retail presence online, and, and a strong relationship with your consumer base, you're good to go. There's a lot of great information in there and recommendations. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of kind of self-education that people are going to do. And hospitality professionals are probably better at that than any other profession that I've come in contact with. What are some outlets or sources or places you go to personally for information that other people can check out too? So I'm going to go ahead and pitch mine because I'm selfish. <laughs> hey, this is your episode, man. Elevator, pitch it up. So uh, what I've tried to do with the Full Comp Podcast is I've tried to give listeners access to the brightest minds in our industry. So if you want to hear guys from John Tapper to Andrew Zimmerman to uh, Will Gadara wax philosophical on what they've done right and what they've done wrong over the years, I think it's a great resource for that. Uh, I partnered with, with the $25 million man, Eric Sue. He's a famed digital marketer to create a podcast called Restaurant Marketing School. Um, each episode is five minutes long. We are five days a week. And every episode is just bite-sized information on, on uh, the best ways to market your restaurant, new technologies that are coming out, and the best way you can leverage those to grow your audience and grow your customer base for your restaurant. And the third one is the Pineapple Post. You can go to the pineapplepost.news, 
and check out my weekly newsletter. The idea is, is that there are a ton of people out there creating great content and not that many people out there curating great content. So what we do is we go through all of the amazing newsletters and online publications every week, and we pull out the most valuable information, the most actionable information, and we give it to you every Sunday. And obviously for everybody listening in the show notes, I'll put up links to both those podcasts and a link that'll take you right to Josh's page. So you can sign up for that newsletter. So after you're done, I love you for it. (laughs) Hey man, like I said, it's my, it's my go-to ride or die quote. High tide raises all ships and I'm going to need more than one place to eat and drink. So yes, sir. (laughs) Well, Josh, you're a busy man. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. If people want to follow you, if they want to reach out, message, chit chat, follow your website, where can they go to do that? They can go to joshcopel.com, J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. You can actually book time on my calendar there if you like as well. What about social media, things like that? Uh, I'm Josh Copel everywhere. You can catch me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Perfect. And as always, those will be in the show notes. Josh, this was a rapid fire, awesome episode. I hope everybody listening got something out of it. I got a ton out of it. Um, If I was owning a restaurant right now, I would at least be able to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief for all the knowledge that you just dropped, my man. Man, I really do appreciate the platform, and I love the conversation myself. All right, brother. I appreciate it, man. Stay well, stay healthy, and I will see you on the other side of this thing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Have a good one. All right, chat soon. Ooh, hope you brought your pen and your notepad. I know that that was a phone call one, and those are a little tougher on the audio than the nice, clear microphone ones, but good. Lord, that man dropped some knowledge. Josh Copel, thank you so much for the time, my brother, signing up. I hope all of you sign up for his newsletter. Again, quick bites of information of the best kind and getting information that is curated and tailor-made for hospitality management is awesome. Even if you don't implement all the practices, at least take the advice, learn what works for you, learn what doesn't. Um, Like we mentioned in the episode a ton of times, everything comes down to each individual business and the operator behind it. So listen to some of the knowledge that he dropped. Um, I hope you got something out of it. I got a ton. I walked away with a full page of notes on it and I don't even own a restaurant yet. Maybe one day, but not yet. But I know when I do, I'll be implementing some of the things that he talked about. So as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for the support. Remember that you can get every episode ad-free and several days early by going to patreon.com slash the best seats. But you already knew that. Enjoy your weekend. If you're on Patreon, listening to this on Friday. If you're in the public, listening to it on Wednesday. I hope you had a good week. And if you're listening to this sometime in the future, man, I hope things are cool. Hope those flying cars are neat. Whatever you're listening to it, we'll see. Thank you, Josh, again for the time. Thank you to all of you for supporting the show. I'll see you soon. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Ralph McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Luiso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Katie Cassie, Serena Warino, Eric Lutz, Cheryl McCarthy, George Pavlov. Thank you for your support.